Father, thank you for the gift of music. Lord, your, your gifts to us are amazing. When we look at the body of Christ, when we look at creation, there is no one but you. And we just want to pause from a busy day worshiping you, but in the quietness of our own heart to say thank you. Thank you for all the blessings of life. Thank you for all the crises of life. We thank you for the adversities that cause us to depend upon you to be more like you. And Father, we do ask that you change us. We desire nothing else but to be more in your image, that we may accomplish your work more effectively as the Spirit of God works in and through us, and we are sustained by him. And as we come to Romans chapter 7 once again, Lord, these are enormous truths. They are truths that affect our every decision, our every, everything about us comes from these truths that we are embarking on. And so we would ask that your spirit would open our hearts. May, may Father, we surrender everything. May there be nothing that we would not be willing to learn and to do by the empowerment of your spirit. And we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and for his glory. Amen. Why can't the Ten Commandments save me? This is probably a question that you have considered, or others have asked, or you may have walked away from a conversation and said, it appears that this person may be trusting in his goodness or her goodness, and maybe trusting in the fact that if they keep a certain amount of the law, and we're just going to kind of designate that by calling it the Big Ten uh, today, is it possible that God would accept my good efforts if I could keep most of the law? In our culture today, this the commandments is somewhat of an enormous issue. Um, most people understand when you say, do you know the Ten Commandments? Still, most of our society would say, yes, I'm familiar with it. In fact, I did not know it had been this long, but uh, when I researched it out, it certainly was. <laughs> I guess that happens with age. You forget how long ago. But you remember in uh, 1995, an Alabama circuit judge by the name of Roy um, Moore. Remember... He was, uh, in his courtroom, he wanted to place the Ten Commandments, boldly put them in his courtroom, and there was quite an uproar by the ACLU to say, no, that's, you can't put religion in the courtroom. And so you probably, those of you who remember that, followed that, and many said it was unconstitutional. Well, not long after that, you remember the Columbine school issue out in Colorado where a number of students were killed uh, by a couple guys who just shot up the school. And uh, actually, there was a poll taken immediately within a matter of a couple weeks after that uh, incident in which 74% of the American people said, we believe the Ten Commandments ought to be posted in every classroom. Now, that never happened, but that was, the, that was the polling data of that particular time. 
There's another organization, and I'm not really sure that it's still in existence, but it was called Operation Save Our Nation. Now, it may be an operation and changed uh, that name. I couldn't find that for sure. Which uh, their, their aspect was, we're going to make little stone tablets and engrave the Ten Commandments, and we're going to send them to all the legislators throughout the United States. Now, whether they actually accomplished that or not, I'm not really sure. But that was their goal. So what is the purpose, we ask ourselves, what is the purpose of displaying the Ten Commandments? Is it to save our nation? Is that the purpose of the Ten Commandments? Is it to save people? Is it to enact better laws? Just why would we do this? Now, I'm sure you're probably saying, well, that's obvious. Don't you know why we would do that? Well, I thought I did. But I come to realize I didn't. Because, as you well know, the Ten Commandments have no power to do anything. Well, you'd say, well, if we were more understanding and more knowledgeable, and if we knew the Ten Commandments, and we put them in the courtroom, we put them in the classroom, uh, we made sure or offered the opportunity for every legislator to look at the Ten Commandments, it would have to help our nation. Not really. Not really. Because there's something that has to come after the Ten Commandments in order for it to be effective. It's an amazing thing. Because growing up as a young boy, I was taught in Sunday school to memorize them, to make sure I understood them, and to be sure I don't do them, don't disobey in that sense. And I think as far as a teenager, I did fairly well. I got on the first one and stayed there for the rest of my life. Because uh, I didn't think there was any sense going to number two until I got number one down, and I never got number one down. And then James comes along and says, if you have broken one in God's court, you've broken them all. Well, wow, why try? Because I knew I'd broken number one. I know I had come before God many, many, many times. I know some people who had legalistic righteousness by obeying the external law and thought they had enough righteousness that it was going to be acceptable to God. So this really becomes really a, an enormous issue for us. What is it about this law of God that we just read in Scripture reading this morning? Should I pay attention to it or should I not? It says if I violate any of those that I'm going to die... I'm already spiritually dead from Adam, so the law is going to kill me. And if I die in that condition, then I'm eternally lost and headed for an eternal damnation. So this is not a good picture for our culture. Well, come with me, if you would, please, to Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13, which is our text this morning. Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 13. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, may it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. 
For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, Thou shalt not covet. Verse 8, But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Once I knew I wasn't supposed to do it, that's all I wanted to do. How does that work? But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. Verse 10, and this commandment, coveting, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Verse 11, for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. Why would I want to obey the commandment? It's going to kill me. The commandment is holy and righteous and good. Verse 13, therefore, did that which is good, the law, become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin. In order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. And you probably say, thanks. That sounds counterproductive to everything I've ever learned in Sunday school, for the most part. Well, let's take it to task by God's enablement. The big point that we want to accomplish this morning as we deal with this section is the law of God, the Big Ten. The law of God is for the purpose of exposing my flesh life. There is something drastically wrong with me and wrong with you and wrong with humanity. We just have a condition, a propensity that sin runs wild. Now, as long as I don't look at God's law, I'm a pretty good guy. But once I look at God's law, it's all over with. Everything I think about the Ten Commandments, I'm guilty. And if you're honest, you are too. You'd say, now, wait a minute, that is not true. I have never committed adultery. Have you ever thought with lust? Well, yeah, but that's not what it says. But Jesus said it did because he said to the Pharisees who were trying to gain some righteousness by saying, we don't commit adultery. And Jesus said, you have in your heart, so you're guilty. You'll notice there was no answer from the Pharisees. Well, I haven't murdered. Jesus said, yes, you have. Have you ever hated anybody? Well, yeah. Well, Jesus says you're guilty. And on and on it goes. So it would appear to me, if I was a youngster, I would say, well, it looks like this law of God, (laughs) it's not good. It's sin. It just makes me sin. It's the law's fault. Mr. Patrolman. Yes, I was 10 miles over, but it was that sign that made me do it. I am guilty, but it's not my fault. It's the sign. It's the 70 miles per hour. You ought to up it and up it and up it till we're in an airplane. Let's go back just for a moment to verse 6 of last week because it brings us into verse 7. But now, Paul says, we have been released from the law. Why would you want to be released from the law of God? 
We have been released from the law, having died to that law by which we were bound, so that we serve in the newness of the Spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. Why would I want to walk up to my friend and flash a Ten Commandments sign in front of him? Why would I do that? Is there any justification for that? Because all it's going to do, it's not going to lift them up. It's going to put them down. They're going to know that they're a worse sinner than they thought they were. So this is what Paul is getting from the church at Rome. What is this? This Ten Commandments, this law of Moses. Paul, could you be... Paul, is this another one of your tactics? You're telling us that the law of Moses is sin? Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the Ten Commandments sin? Paul's answer is what? It's clear. No, you've misunderstood. I've never said that. May it never be. It's impossible for the law of God to be sin. This was a misunderstanding of what Paul had said in verses 1 through 6. Now he says, on the contrary, if you'll notice in verse 7 now, on the contrary, I would not have come to know sin. I would have no experience of sin. I would not only not known it, I would not experience. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Ah, are you saying, Paul, that the Ten Commandments is not sin? May it never be, but the Ten Commandments show me I have sinned. I've broken the law, thou shalt not covet. Yes. Now, you may wonder, as I do, why did Paul pick number ten? I mean, I can think of worse ones from my perspective. God wouldn't agree with that. But why don't covet your neighbor's wife? Why why choose that one? Undoubtedly, that's a little bit of flickerism, okay? But all the rest of the laws, you will notice, are behavioral issues. You see, to have another God before the true and living God, me, primarily, me, God, just hang on. I'm going to do what I want to do first. It's a violation of that. So what is being said here is I'm covetous. I'm desirous. I'm desirous of doing what I want to do rather than following God. And if you take all of the other nine, you can always say it comes from a heart of covetousness. Why would I murder somebody? Because I don't like you and my desire is to get you out of my life. Why would I rob a bank? Because I'm desirous, I'm covetous. I want, I want, I want. And that is true of the nine. As you work your way through it. It's interesting as we look at this in verse 7. Any desire, actually that's the Greek word for covetousness, Any desire that evidences that one has lost, listen carefully to this. Anyone, 
you and I, when we have a desire, now there are correct desires, a desire for God, yes. But there is a wrong kind of desire, and it always evidences that I have lost my ability to be satisfied in God alone. That's really simple. Why would I covet anything? Because I can no longer get any contentment, any pleasure from obeying God. So I choose to obey myself. That's really important. That's true. And you know, I don't know how to live apart from that. And scripturally, you don't either. You see, the moment that I was conceived, I inherited from the first man who had desires other than God and was not content in desiring God and chose to disobey and partake of the forbidden fruit. That's covetousness. And so when I was born, I was born with that sinful condition. In 7 and 8, it'll, it'll help us if we just simply come up with the term flesh life. We as Christians understand that term in Scripture, flesh, living out of the flesh. Galatians 5 tells us about flesh and all the corruption of it. I'm not talking about my skin, but it's talking about that condition I have in which the works of the flesh is just simple ungodliness, and he lists them all out. Now, that being true, I have never known. It's impossible. It's impossible for you and me to do anything other than be covetous. It's impossible. I would have to have a new life. I would have to have a different life. I would have to have God's life to get away from living the flesh life. That just comes along with birth. Everybody has it. And that's the basis Paul was building here. Why does Paul do this? Because he wants to solidify in the mind of these Roman believers, you, you're not all Jewish, and those of you who are Jewish probably have a greater problem with this statement, but you've got to understand what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments hanging on a wall, sitting on a desk, is never going to change anything about you. You will be more knowledgeable, and you will be more sinful, and you'll have more knowledge of your sin but it has absolutely zilch power to change your life. That's Paul's point. Let's take a little quiz here. The ten, representing all of the commands of God, those which Moses brought to the people. The question is, Is the law sin? No. It isn't. Now then, I do learn, though, from verse 7 that the commandments 
in view, and I'm knowledgeable of them, but I have the flesh life, that is, the Adamic life, if you're talking theologically. But this is that flesh life. This is all I know. You show me anything other than the flesh life, and I'm going to rebel. You just take me out as a kid to the mud puddle. My mom said, you got your Easter clothes on. Don't you dare go out there and step in that mud puddle. Well, come on, Mom. I didn't know it existed till you told me. And now I can do nothing else, go out there and see how close I can get at it. And then it must really feel better than not getting in the mud puddle. I really desire to see how this would work. And so I put my little white sandals in the mud puddle. And life takes a turn. That's the flesh life. i got to have my way. But I tell you what, I'm going to make it smell good. Because in the midst of all of this, I'll come to church. I'll even have a Bible. I'll even try to read it. It doesn't make much sense, but I'll try to read it. And so, God, am I gaining ground with you? God, look, how about some blessings? That's what I'm told on TV. If I externalize and I do these things... I'm going to get some blessings. Come on, God. When's the payoff? It's been a week now. If you would, look at verse 8. Because the flesh life is the sinful condition we inherited from Adam. That's, That's important. I think I put it in your notes. Is it inspired? No. Does it have authority? No. But it's good stuff. Spirit life. What's the difference? Well, Romans 8 is going to tell us about spirit life. Spirit life is the righteous condition we receive. We don't inherit. We receive it from Christ at regeneration. I inherited the flesh life. Life is all about me. Watch me go. The Christ life is, no, I died to self, and my life from this point on is all about Christ and his work and his glory and his honor. And wow, I didn't realize this in the and before I was saved. I didn't realize that surrendering to Christ and obeying Christ would be the greatest contentment and pleasure that a human being could ever experience. Are there ups and downs and bumps? Yes, even in the bumps, there's contentment. Because I know how to resolve it through Christ and His Spirit. But see, I can't realize that in the flesh life. Neither can you. Verse 8 then. But sin, and if you care to, what he's referring to is this flesh life. This is the sin that he's calling it here. This condition. This condition taking opportunity. Actually... Kind of a, another one of those interesting words that come out of the original language. You don't know this, but I practiced many hours this week drawing, and I know it was to no avail. But this is base camp. It's actually a military term. Looking for a base camp to then start my operations of war. 
Okay? Now notice what he says here. But sin, taking opportunity, sin, this flesh life, looking for, seizing a starting point. Well, I found my base camp. I found a place where I could operate out in the sin flesh by Satan's enablement, because I'm a slave of his. Therefore, I found the base camp. It's, it's the ten. It's the commandments. It's the base camp. I can use the ten to live my life the way I want to live it. How does that work? Well, he says, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced this flesh life performed successfully in me. Why? Well, what it did... I found out I was covetous. And I wanted to do it. And I couldn't stop doing it. So everywhere I go, I acknowledge that God is just saying, you die, you die, you die, you die, because you're always breaking my law. Well, why would sin do that? Why would my self, why would my flesh life want to do that? Notice what he says. In me coveting of every kind, every variety. For apart from the law, sin is dead. Apart from the law, my flesh life doesn't have a base camp. doesn't mean I don't know about sin, but it's not being aroused. It's not being energized. Because I'm walking around saying, well, yeah, you say that sin. I'm not sure that sin. And, uh, you know, all is well. I'm okay, you're okay. But then what happens is as I'm toying with this, the commandments, now I find as I look at them, it just arouses my flesh. And I just realize I can't stop sinning. That's all that's coming out of my life. And I, here it is, I have no ability, I have no power, even though morally I may realize this is not good. I want to start, stop arguing with my wife. I want to start doing this, but I love doing what I want to do better than stopping. Right? And so... He says, I, in the flesh life, this condition I inherited from Adam, I absolutely do not have any power to stop it. And this is going to be so abundant. This is just profusely going to get out of hand. You'd say, give me an illustration. Okay. Libya. Want another one? Yemen. Want another one? All throughout northern Africa. Ethiopia. China. America. Do you see any countries in righteousness or are they just all full of what? Corruption. Lying, cheating, desiring, coveting. I want what you've got. I want what you've got. I want what you've got. And we look at the world and we say, it's chaos. Yeah. 
look at our lives and we say, all is not well. There are some things that we need to resolve in our own personal lives, in our own marriages, in our own fellowship, in our own church. Now then, so let's put the base camp back in here. This is the basis of operation for the flesh life. Because I know that the more laws you give me, the more I want. I have, my nature is, I want to disobey. And I will disobey more and more and more. If we really carefully look at our life under the magnifying glass, not that that's needed, we'll find this to be true. Experience it. Now, verse 9. Paul says, okay, let me illustrate this to you. In verse 9, Paul says, I, I was once alive. He uses the word here, ironically, about eternal life. It's not eternal life, but the word life, zoe, meaning fervent, exciting, everything I've ever wanted. I was once alive. And yes, I knew the law, and Philippians 3, 6 says, man, I looked at the law, and I was, I was righteous among the righteous. And the law was not giving me any problem because I was a righteous Pharisee. He was a legalist. Conforming to the outwardness of the what? Of the law. But inside, he paid no attention. I was once alive apart from the law. I was independent of it. But when the commandment came, when I came to the place to realize, you shall not covenant, covet, I found no contentment. The only contentment, I could, contentment and pleasure I could find is in me. And now I came to a place in my life, I began to realize what the law is really doing to me. He says, but when the commandment came, sin became alive. It sprang into action. And he says, I died. I, I realized I couldn't keep the law. I, a Pharisee, God enabled me to understand that this, I knew this as a Pharisee. I knew this as being Jewish, the law of Moses. If you keep it perfectly, you live forever. If you break it at any point, you what? You die. And he says, wow, I just realized I'm violating this more than I ever have. Now it's clear as I look at the Ten Commandments from that perspective that that is me. And I tell you what I get is I die. That's exactly the end of my existence. That's the end of my life on planet Earth. I die. What caused this? It was the flesh life working out of the base camp. And the more I looked at the law, the Ten Commandments, it just infuriated me and I I just went to pieces on it. And I just exploded in all kinds of sin thought and sin actions. And And I realized what the law really said is, If you break it, you die. So what i got to do is stop breaking it. But I couldn't stop breaking it. It just got worse and worse and worse. Listen, 
our culture is going to get worse and worse and worse. This is exactly what Paul says in 2 Timothy. It will become what? Worse and worse and worse. And, and we say, flash the Ten Commandments, flash the Ten Commandments, flash the Ten Commandments. What would you expect from that? It's going to get much worse. <laughs> That's exactly what Paul was saying. And there's many in Christianity who are saying, oh no, it'll turn this nation around. What they need is the law of God. Well, they need the law of God to see that they're hopeless, but they don't need to see the law of God as their hope because it isn't. It it has no power. It's just a law. It has no power to do anything. Sin will take hold of it and explode our sinfulness. Well, this is what we're reading then in verse 9. So instead of not coveting, I find myself coveting more. And then I find through this whole process, you can just write one thing over my life. The law, judge of the universe, says that I am what? Condemned forever. God, isn't there anything I can do? No. Absolutely not. There is absolutely nothing, nothing, nothing. This is Paul's point. Will you please, Roman people, come to the place where you say, I am hopeless. I have no hope. I'm done for. I'm condemned by the God of the universe. I can't outmaneuver him. I'm gone. I'm gone. I'm gone. You say, I got it. Okay. Well, then, God, if I can't do anything, that takes somebody other than me to do it on my behalf. And we have to explore that here. Verse 10, and this commandment, what is it? You shall not covet, which was to result... If I wouldn't covet, then I would have abundant life. The problem is I can't stop coveting. To get abundant life, I have to obey this perfectly. I can't do it. Nobody's ever done it. No human being's ever done that. There is a divine human that did it, and his name is Certainly not the Ten Commandments. And this commandment which was to result in life, provided to result in death for me, I became fully aware that I was condemned before a holy God. So, we have the enormous opportunity here to take this little drawing of this little fellow. And the only thing we can do is give him a nice burial. Right? Except that's not true. He's not going to rest in peace. He's going to rest in agony. The world told me a lie. 
but what would you expect from a world system that does not know God? Well, don't you believe everybody eventually is going to get to heaven? doesn't make any difference what I believe. Ask God. And God says no. Absolutely not. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Now, verse 11. For, here's the reason, for sin, this flesh, life. For sin, which has dominion over me as an unsaved person, taking on opportunity, it's seizing a good opportunity through the command not to covet. I'm saying to God, I refuse to even think about that I could have contentment and pleasure by serving you, God. I I won't allow that to enter my mind. I will continue to pursue my own contentment, my own pleasure, my own covetousness, because life in the flesh is about me. And so sin taking on an opportunity through the commandment, it says, it deceived me. I had an erroneous concept, Paul says, about this law as a Pharisee. There were two ways that I could respond. There's two ways any man can respond to the law. I could have hopelessness. Hopelessness was, well, there's no way. If, if I accept, Maybe I don't, but if I accept what you're telling me, Don, there's nothing but hopelessness. You're right. You ever hear about this in the Scriptures? What makes a person marry? Not M-A-R-R. M-E-R-R. He says what? If you are hopeless and you know there is no hope, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you what? There it is. That's choice number one. You want to go tell your neighbor that one? It's not good news, is it? That is not good news. That is not the gospel. Number two is there is hope. Paul says, yeah, I can look at it as being hopeful. I will try harder. Especially if I spell it right. I will try harder. I will reform myself. My wife says, hang up your pants. All right. Help me around the house. All right. I'm reforming myself. Say, now how many credits do I have? The same as you started with. Silch. Doesn't work that way. You'd say, well, hopelessness? Hopeful? Well... That's not going to work. Now, notice what he does say. Deceive me, and through it he slaughtered me. Paul uses a terrible term here. Just didn't, not that condemn you die. Slaughtered. 
when the Jewish person went to the tabernacle and offered a sacrifice for his sin, who slit the throat of the animal? Priest didn't. You slit your own animal's what? Because he is bearing your what? Sin in your place. This is the term. Now, verse 13. Let me go back to verse 12 and just pick it up real quick. So then, is the law sin? Answer is what? The law of God is not sin. But my self, my flesh life sets up its base of operation through the law and uses the law to just make sin abundant. Paul says, so that they could understand it, so then the law is, this law actually has an enormous quality to it. It is holy, it is righteous, and it is what? Holy, righteous, and good. You'd say, is that really important? I I would rather think so, because when you come to those dilemmas and say, well, who created evil? Well, if God's the author of law and he is holy and righteous and good, how could he ever create evil? A holy, righteous, and good God can permit evil for his own glory, which I do not thoroughly understand and neither do you. But I know that is true. That's his law. That's the quality of it because that's his nature. That's his attributes, holy, righteous, and good, plus an infinite number of others. Now, in verse 13 then, therefore did that which is good, did that which is good, what's good? The commandment, the law, thou shalt not covet, that's good. But it became a cause of death for me. Why did it become a cause of death? Because I can't keep it. If you can't keep it, you're going to die. Therefore did that which is good become a cause of death for me? No, the law didn't cause that. What caused it? Sin. That's it. Now you got it. He just answered the question to the Romans. Even though this is how sin uses the commandments of God, because a person is in the flesh life, not in the Christ life, so that's the only way you can use it. But this didn't cause you to die. It's because you broke it. It's sin. It's this sin, this flesh life you and I have. It's the condition that we inherited. You are a goner. I am a goner. It's done. It's over with. There's no other recourse. Unless you turn to whom? Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. The problem is not the law. Rather, it was sin. In order that the purpose is, now here it is. Please don't miss this. Here it is. In order that might be shown to be sin. What is the purpose of the law? Here it is. You'll be amazed at how simple it is. The purpose of the law is to tell me that I was born with the flesh life and I have no hope. It's not to show me how to be saved. It's not going to clean up my culture. It's not going to do anything. 
But people who have been regenerated and converted will have an enormous influence upon their culture. So, if I want to be careful with this, but if you present the Ten Commandments without the gospel, you have just confirmed a person's condemnation with no hope. Now, if you want to send concrete tablets to every legislator in America, then please insert the gospel with it so that they have hope. You see where I'm coming from? But see, Americans have an enormous ability to twist it our way. And other people do too. I don't want to give the gospel. I'm, I'm backward. I, I might tell it wrong. I could never tell this. So... Let's put the law out there. It'll do it for us. Right? Well, let's go get a preacher to do it. You know how quick you would wear out a preacher if everybody said, yeah, that's the way we're going to do it. Preacher, you come with me to work this week. How many people work in here? (laughs) How would I ever get to every place? I don't think that's God's way. You and I, go make what? Go make disciples of all nations. You go. What, I don't know this. Well, then know it. Then get under the gospel and know it. It doesn't come by osmosis. Nobody ever got it that way. Billy Graham didn't get it that way. Most of us didn't get it. It's hard work. God knows it's hard work. It's not a microwave religion. You'd say, well, before you close, just could you help me? Just show me how that works one more time. Glad to. Here's how it works. I'll give you an illustration. The flesh life sets up camp, that, and it's going to use the perfection of the law to excite rage and anger and covetousness and lust in my life. And... The flesh life likes the law because then it just, it just profusely throws it out there. You'd say, how, how does that work? Okay. Let's take a home situation. Two children, let's say, this home has. Billy takes Susie's doll. Susie hits Billy. How many sins we have here? At least two, right? Then we could go with attitude and all that stuff. And, and Okay. Billy takes Susie's doll. Susie hits Billy. Mom spanks both. Now you say, well, I don't think that's necessarily sin. Well, Dad does. Dad says... It's extreme punishment. I mean, can't Dad have a view? Sure he can. Right. Dad says it's extreme punishment. Mom gets angry at Dad for rebuking. How many sins we got going now? I mean, this is over one little Billy who's covetous. He's got the whole family involved. So, 
Mom gets angry at Dad for rebuking her. Now watch this. Billy and Susie are now hugging each other. They've already made up. Mom says, sleep on couch. Mom doesn't sleep well. Dad doesn't sleep well. Breakfast is a cold breakfast. Everybody get, you're on your own. How many sins are there? You see what Paul's talking about? It comes alive. It affects everybody. And somewhere down the line, the counselor says, where did this all begin? You guys have taken your rings off. You're ready for divorce. Where did this all start? He, he doesn't like... How many years ago was it, honey? Four years ago, he rebuked me in front of the children. And since we didn't resolve that, it just got worse and worse and worse. Guys... This is where we're at. You take that to your office. You see that going on in your office? School? This is what Paul is crying out for us to understand. What's the solution? First of all, the only way I can get out of this mess is that I must die to the law. I have to get out from under, it's a righteous law, but it has no power to make me behave. It can only show me what I do wrong, and God purposed that. It is used to say, Don, you have the flesh life, and I, God, condemn you for that. And there's plenty of evidence that you have the flesh life. That's the purpose of the law. Now then. Lord, how do I get away from this? How do I get away? How can I die? How can I be separated from this law? Because I can never get around that. Nobody can. Well, God says very simply this. I tell you how you can do it. Are you guilty? Yes, I am. Do you owe me a debt? Yes, I do. How much is that debt? Lord, I couldn't pay it in a million years. God says, you got that right. So you owe me an eternal debt can only be paid by an eternal death. So I say, God, that won't work because if I die for my sins, I'm dead, I'm gone. He says, you got that right too. What's my options? I'm going to go over and get John Perez. I'm going to talk to him. John, would, would you take my debt? Be honest now, would you? No. It's too large. It's too painful, too. John's not going to take my debt. And if John had a lapse of memory and said, Oh, yeah, I'll get in my heart. I'll die in your place. What's he going to do? He's got debt, too. So that's not going to work because John can't die for my sins because he's a sinner, too. I'm a sinner. Well, who out there is going to die for me? Thank you for your quietness. Now I have real self-worth. 
Nobody wants to die for me. That's right. Christ says, hello. 2,000 years ago, I got on a cross, and I took the sins of the world, and Don, I took yours 2,000 years ago, in order to set you free from the condemnation of what? Of the law. And I will set you free, and now you'll become my slave, a slave to righteousness. You'd say, well, I still don't have the ability to do that. Oh, yes, Don, you will. Because, you see, when you put your faith in me, I gave you the faith to do that. I regenerated you, and I gave you the ability to express your faith because you're totally depraved. I gave you the faith to express Faith in me of what I have done for you. You know the content. You assent to that content. And you're willing to rely upon what I've done. You trust me. You have nobody else to trust in. You trust me to set you free. And that's exactly what I did. And now I have set you to be a slave to righteousness. And now you love righteousness in fact when you don't find your contentment in me and your pleasure in me you are disappointed you would you say now i've got to confess this sin because this still is hanging on to me it no longer has power romans 6 6 says because now i have the christ life but this still is the temptation this flesh life so, as I realize that I'm not always perfect, but Lord, how I want to be. Lord, I no longer want to be like this. And Lord, it's, I want to find my pleasure and contentment. You might ask, well, why are you saying that? Because there's nothing else I could say. Because the power of the Holy Spirit lives within me. And lives within you as a believer. And there's nothing else I could say other than, so be it, God. And when I fail because I have not been totally glorified and retained, when I fail, oh, Lord, I will fall on my knees and confess that. That's a lot better than a slab of cement with ten walls. That's not being negative towards the law. I have to understand what's the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is for you and I and all of America and all the world to say, you have a problem, and this is the problem. The only one that can correct this problem is me. I can take away the authority of that, the power of that, give you the life of Christ. So we end it with that. What a wonderful story of the gospel. And with that information, Paul now moves us in to 15 through 25, which is one of the most difficult passages in all the world, Word of God. But understanding the first 14 moves us into it. Folks, this is a great story. In fact, it's better than a story. It's fact. Let's pray.
Father, thank you so much for the journey that we've been on this morning through this incredible book. 2,000 years ago when there was a Pharisee saved by the grace of God on the Damascus Road who had a passion to go anywhere and everywhere to make sure people understood the purpose of the law. And Father, perhaps there is a person here this morning. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So they have heard. Now those that you, Lord, are regenerating, they will desire to respond in repentance, not only to have their sins forgiven, but they will desire to move away from their sinfulness. They will now have a desire to be righteous, and they will have all the faith, the trust, the reliance in the world to say, I believe, I believe, I believe. That's not their work. That's the work of your Spirit. And Father, if there's anyone like that this morning, then they have no problem saying, thank you, God. I didn't realize it makes sense. I am so excited about no longer being condemned, but having new life, eternal life. I want to know you, and I want to serve you. My life is now new, and it will become even more and more throughout the weeks and months and years. So, Father, may that person just express where they're at. Thank you, God. Thank you. Thank you for giving me new life. May you be honored with our response. May you see our worship is, yes, Lord. We pray for those, Lord, who would say, no, not yet. No, maybe never. They are our friends. We love them. Oh, Father, may you give understanding of your truths for Christ's sake.